0: On behalf of the Grace Bible Church, we want to welcome each and every one of you to our symposium on water baptism. We extend a special welcome to those who are visitors, who do not normally attend our group on Sundays. We're glad you can be here. We do also want to extend a, a warm thank you to uh, Pastor Larry Correll and the folks of Christian Missionary Alliance Church here, who have graciously loaned us their facilities for today. Seems it's going to work out very well, and we appreciate it so much. I'd like to introduce the men who are going to be participating. And then I'll give you a brief rundown of the format that we'll be following, and we'll get started right away. Here to my right is Reverend Glenn Davis from Marion, Ohio. He has taught in the past at Philadelphia College of Bible, Baptist Bible Institute of Cleveland, and he's pastored several Baptist churches. And here to my far left is Mr. C.R. Stamp from Chicago, Illinois, who is president of the Berean Bible Society. He's the author of several books and pamphlets. And Mr. Stamp's position is that water baptism is not for this dispensation today. Reverend Davis holds the traditional historic Baptist position that water baptism is for believers and should be practiced as an act of obedience to the Lord. And here to my immediate left is Mr. R. Crawford from Columbus, Ohio. He's a pastor of Riverside Bible Church and is a businessman, also from Columbus, Ohio. The format we're going to follow, which of course will not be very rigid, it will provide us with some guidelines. We trust each man will present the position he feels the Bible to teach for 20 minutes, and then we'll hear from a second gentleman, and then from a the third. And for the first session, they'll be in. Uh, in this order we'll hear from mr Stam first and then mr crawford and then mr davis and following the presentation of each of these positions you will have an opportunity to direct questions to any one of these three men about any of the statements they made or any questions that they have uh, that they may have raised in your mind and we want you to participate this is for the benefit of the people of grace bible church and we are trying to determine from the presentation that these men make what we feel as a result of this and as a result of additional bible study on our own what we feel the lord would have us do regarding water baptism and what our position will be concerning it and we tried to get the most capable men that we could find to present these various positions so that each and every one would get a fair hearing if you have questions Uh, We would prefer to have them written, but for this first session that will not hardly be possible. If you do have a question you'd like to submit in writing, just get right up out of your seat, bring the question up, lay it on the desk in front of me, go on back to your seat, and we'll get to it. If you want to ask a question verbally, you're certainly welcome to do so. We only ask that you be recognized, and when you ask your question, please stand and direct the question to the front as audibly and as loudly as you can for the benefit of our microphone pickup. We're going to read a portion of Scripture now from Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself... But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive thee one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Shall we pray? Loving Heavenly Father, we come unto thee this morning hour with grateful hearts for what thou hast done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank thee that each and every one here, as a child of God, has the common goal of honoring and glorifying the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for the lives and for the testimony of each of these three men who have consented to come and be with us thou knowest that they're lovers of our christ we pray now that thou wilt manifest thyself to us in an unusual way we pray for the uh, the atmosphere and the spiritual temperature that we want to prevail here that it may be that which is honoring and glorifying to jesus christ we ask that thou wilt sanctify this unto thyself that the result may be believers shall be edified, built up in the most precious faith. We commit it to thee now, and all that shall take place here, in Jesus' name. Amen. You. you gentlemen, each of you will forgive me if I, <coughs> if I uh, become somewhat nasty about the time, or in the coattails, or something like that, but we want to try and maintain the time as closely as we can, so everyone will have the same opportunity, and we want to hear equally from all three of you. So, uh, we'll have to limit your questions, too, as we stated in the thing, in the paper here, or limit your answers, rather, to five minutes, and then each gentleman will have an opportunity to respond to that answer. So, first of all, we'll hear from Mr. C.R. Stam.
1: I'm so terribly tall. Is it all right to sit down? Fine. I would prefer that you do so. Good. Uh, There's so many things I'd like to say about how carefully this all was arranged, and how wonderful it is that all of us who truly love the Word and truly love the Lord can get together and discuss in Christian love what we believe the Bible teaches. I'm going to wait, though, with that, because that's going to come off my 20 minutes. (laughs) Uh, Some years ago, I spoke at a meeting, and it was a young lady in one of the front and she didn't hear a word I said, but I could understand it. I heartily forgave her. You know what she was doing? She was looking that way. She was smiling, you know. (laughs) She had said yes to some gentleman, and he had put that ring on her finger. And no matter how she looked at it, it shone. And after I left that meeting, I thought, isn't that just like the word? No matter how you look at it, it shines. There's so very, very much still to learn. And it's so also about the wonderful Savior of whom this book, uh, who is the theme, really, of this book. No matter how you look at him, he shines. And I'm sure that all of us are going to learn a great deal, the Lord willing, this day. And I trust that it will prove a blessing to us all. Now, the theme for this session, as I understand it, is water baptism in the four gospel accounts. We call them the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Would you turn with me, please, to the very first verse, Matthew 1.1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. Now those two are doubtless mentioned because of the covenants made with them. You remember God promised to Abraham a land and a nation to dwell in that land. And later to David he promised a kingdom and a king to rule over that kingdom over that nation in that land now this has to do not with heaven but with the earth people are sometimes shocked when we tell them that they'll look in the Old Testament in vain for any promise to go to heaven the outlook is entirely earthly much is said about the God of heaven and much is said about heaven itself but no promise about going there as we get into the four gospel records, we come here as the very first thing, to Jesus Christ as the son of David and the son of Abraham. That is a, merely a continuation of what you read in the prophets, for example, Jeremiah 23, 5, where we read that, Thus saith the Lord, I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. You remember when Christ was born, the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You remember our Lord's Sermon on the Mount where he says the meek shall inherit the earth and the prayer that he taught his disciples thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It's a great mass of evidence in the four gospel records that the gospel which our Lord preached and which his disciples preached at that time had to do with the kingdom to be established on earth. That's why the Phrase that's used in the Gospels is the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of the cross, but the gospel of the throne, the good news about the throne, the kingdom, the reign of Christ. And that kingdom was now proclaimed at hand. That's why you find uh, such a large portion uh, given to the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It had to do with a way of life on earth. And much is said about the earth and about their, uh, it's been called, in fact, the charter of the kingdom. Some of our Bible teachers have called it that. Today, it is the liberals largely who make their message, the Sermon on the Mount. If we only could live like the Sermon on the Mount, how happy we would be. And that is true. It has to do with a way of life on earth, a way, however, that could not be fully practiced today. We just could not keep it all. Now, what relation has this to water baptism? Well, I think a great deal. The gospel of the kingdom did not have as its theme the finished work of Christ, not so at all. Will you turn with me, please, to Mark, the first chapter? Mark, chapter 1, verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Three times at least, this is called the baptism which John preached, you see. People have come to me and said, Brother Stam, I don't preach baptism, I preach Christ. Well, that's fine. That's what you should do. John also said Christ is coming and here he is. But as far as the terms of salvation are concerned, he preached baptism. There it is. John did baptize and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, verse 5, please. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now, I, as I understand it, I'll let them speak for themselves, but I think my brethren here do not believe that this is the baptism we're practicing today. Nevertheless, I would like to call your attention to the great difference between this baptism and uh, what the baptism that is being practiced by many today. I read a book not long ago where the writer said, I find that those who come to be baptized are always so happy. There's so much joy connected with it. They come as one woman came just recently saying, Praise the Lord, oh, praise the Lord. But notice, these people didn't come that way. They came pale and shaken. They came to confess their sins. This was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and by it they acknowledged that they sorely needed cleansing and they came confessing their sins. Turn, please, to Luke chapter 7, if you will, and see the importance of this baptism. Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified whom? They justified God. They said, he's right. He's right in his verdict about our condition. He's right in what he says about us. They justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. You remember when the scribes and Pharisees came to be baptized of John, he wouldn't even He sent them back. They had a religious political motive, the old idea, you know, if you can't lick them, join them. (laughs) So they joined them. They uh, came and said, well, come on, let's get baptized too. So they went to be baptized, and John sent them back, said, you generation of vipers who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Go back and bring forth fruits, meat, for repentance. So this baptism, at least, was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and those who came had to come truly contrite, truly brokenhearted about their sins and confess them, and then they were baptized. Now, so much for the baptism of John. If you look now, please, at John. This is the writer John now, chapter 4. The other was John the Baptist. John chapter 4, the uh, first two verses. In the chapter preceding, verse 22, it says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. However, in chapter 4 it says, When therefore the Lord knew how that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Don't suppose for a moment that baptism under John the Baptist was very important, but less so when the Lord and the twelve preached." Not at all. He made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. So the uh, ordinance of baptism uh, had great significance and great importance all through the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) Now, will you turn, please, to the 16th chapter of Mark. Here we come to our Lord's, uh, some of our Lord's parting words. I say parting, not his last words. He had far more to say later when he appeared by revelation to Paul. But these were the parting, some of his parting words to the 11 apostles later, of course, brought up to 12 again. Uh, Mark 16, verse 15. And they said unto them, Go ye into all the word, and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, the, uh, the word gospel there is so important people have come to me and said, uh, well, doesn't it say they should go out and preach the gospel? Well, maybe later on we'll discuss and show from Scripture that that was not the same gospel that we preach today and could not have been. But the point is, let's ask this simple question. What does the phrase the gospel mean? I think everybody here knows that the gospel means The good news. Right. Now, if I should come into this door and say to you this morning, did you hear the good news? What would your response naturally be if you had not heard it? You'd naturally say, what good news, wouldn't you? What good news? Beloved, we should do that as we study the word of God, too. God did not have just one item of good news down through the ages. There were many items. He preached the gospel to Abraham, we read in Galatians 3. He preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That was good news, wasn't it? Tremendous good news. If God should take any of you men by the... uh, Touch you on the shoulder and say, In you all nations are going to be blessed. Wouldn't you consider that good news? And God preached that gospel to Abraham many centuries ago. Now, I... Mentioned to Brother Dave Weinbrenner this morning, I want to write on that sometime. We've often said that it's wrong to take a text out of context. We should study any passage in its immediate and also its more distant context. But it's been emphasized in my mind more and more lately that the preceding context, is generally more important and far more important than the succeeding conduct. For example, here he says, go in and preach the gospel. What gospel would he mean? You wouldn't go to Ephesians to find out, would you? You'd go back and see what gospel they had been preaching. And that's very simple. The phrase that is used in the four gospel records is the gospel of the kingdom. Now he says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth, or but he that believeth not, shall be damned or condemned. Now this fits with the gospel of the kingdom. This is what John preached: the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. They had to be baptized to get their sins remitted. Now so in Mark, he it's a continuation. Uh, uh, well I say a further a further uh, development of the same program. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I think it is a rather weak argument to say, but it doesn't say he that believeth not and is not baptized why would he that believeth not be baptized? (laughs) And if he that believeth not were baptized, he'd be dishonest, wouldn't he? So the point is, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not, whether baptized or not, would be damned or condemned. Now, uh, I'm sorry that this verse has often been arbitrarily altered, so it seems to me at least. The reason is quite obvious. Those who alter it say, well, that can't mean that you have to believe and be baptized to be saved under the Great Commission because you read in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourself. You read in Titus 3:5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So it can't mean that. Ah, it can't. If these are the same two messages, the same two items of good news, but they are not. This is the same good news that John was preaching. And the Lord Jesus clearly says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He does not say, He that believeth and is saved should then be baptized. I believe that that is an arbitrary altering of Scripture. We go on, in the same same passage says, These signs, verse 17, shall follow them that believe. And then we have those great, miraculous uh, demonstrations. But they do not follow those who believe today. And they do not follow those who believe under the gospel that the Lord Jesus committed to the Apostle Paul. They go along with the gospel of the kingdom. Just as he wrought miracles, just as his twelve apostles had wrought miracles, they were now going to do greater works than these, uh, our Lord said. Dr. Haldeman used to say about verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. But I, I never knew him to read verses 16 and 17 and then say, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. <laughs> because uh, we it is not right to use our own snatch-grab method, as it were, and take out of that Great Commission bag just what we would like to practice or what our denomination or background or tradition has taught us to practice. We must take it just as it is. I don't know whether you've noticed this. I certainly have, that the records of the Great Commission, and we have them in all five, uh, four Gospels and the Book of Acts, we have five of them, the records of the so-called Great Commission are seldom ever expounded. You've heard messages on the go, and lo, I am with you, ye are my witnesses, ye shall receive power, and so on. But when have you last heard the so-called Great Commission expounded, clearly expounded, taken word for word, sentence by sentence, to see what it really means? Well, this was ceremonial cleansing, as I see it. They needed to acknowledge that they were filthy and needed to be cleansed spiritually. Now, just a a word yet about uh, our Lord's own baptism. Let's turn, please, to Matthew chapter 3. Our Lord's own baptism with water. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Now isn't that strange? This was the baptism of repentance to which men came confessing their sins. Why should he come? He had no sins to confess. It isn't strange that we read in the next verse, but John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. And comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now without going into the many ramifications here, it is clear that the Lord Jesus, the sinfulness, the sinless one, came to a baptism of repentance where sins were confessed. How can we link that with anything else but what we read in Isaiah 53? He was numbered with the transgressors. He was taking the place of a sinner. He was coming as a sinner. In fact, Martin Luther, I think, very well says about his trial before Pilate and before Caiaphas. Both of them said, don't you hear how many things they're witnessing against you? Have you nothing to say? And he answered them to never a word. And Luther said, well, it was natural that he didn't answer. He was guilty. Oh, you say, Martin Luther, you don't mean he was guilty. Ah, uh, yes, Luther says, not in himself, but as us, you see. He came there as the sinner. He didn't only really die for us, he died as us. He became a human being to represent the human race and die for them, and to die for their sins. Now, in Luke 12, 50... He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Is that two minutes? Is that correct? Did I use it up? Oh, fine. We'll stop right here. Me. No, 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 no. No, no. I'll... We'll go on with the rest later. <laughs> the dispensation of grace we'll deal with later. Thank you, Brother Stan. You
0: ought to be making making note of any questions that you have if your memory is no better than mine is don't trust it write it down uh, we'll ask brother crawford now if he'll uh, present his understanding of water baptism in the gospels
2: i don't really know why i'm here it's amazing to me how many times the lord puts me in places where i don't think he ought to put me i'm represented here as presenting a position it's not true no position to present. I believe that we're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not fighting for any position. No argument with my brethren at all. No argument with you. I believe that we come to a book. The book has one author, the Holy Spirit. I don't spend one second in any of my Bible teaching worrying about who wrote Romans. I know who wrote Romans, the Holy Spirit. I know who wrote Leviticus, the Holy Spirit. God has one message, Now, it's incumbent upon me that I not be here for all of the afternoon session the evening session, and I'm sorry about that. I'd like to be here. So I'm going to take just a few liberties in my 20 minutes to define some terms. I think it's important that we define terms.
1: I believe that God has presented
2: in this one message Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit led Paul to say, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'd like to point out that that's two things not one. I've heard a lot of precious brethren say, that's my only message, Jesus Christ crucified. That wasn't the message the Holy Spirit is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 2. It was Jesus Christ, his person, and him crucified, his work. And all of the word of God is a revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't see Jesus Christ in election in Genesis, you haven't understood Genesis. If you don't see Jesus Christ in redemption in Exodus, you haven't understood Exodus. And if you don't see Jesus Christ in every lesson in the Word of God, you've missed the truth of the Word of God. It is, in fact, the great revelation of the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People weren't saved in the Old Testament by looking forward to the cross of Christ any more than you're saved in the New Testament by looking back to it. saved by looking back to the cross of Jesus Christ? You're saved because Christ died in your place. To put it more simply, you're saved by grace. So was Adam. So was Abraham. So was David. And when the Jews were saved by grace and led out of the land of Egypt, and if we had time, in 20 minutes, all due respects for Marv, I love him, but nobody's ever limited me to 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I probably> won't. <laughs> if we start turning to passages of Scripture, I'll Listen, I brought up. I've often told people I address my remarks to the air. I'm not talking to you, just to the
0: room. May hey, I interrupt I? you just a moment? <coughs> yes. Would you gentlemen, would it be all right with you gentlemen, since Mr. Crawford will not be here for the evening session? The only do only for sure. only I yeah, know part man. of the afternoon, that he could have a double portion of time. No, so I
2: don't need it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll determine that. You're going it. Go ahead. All right, I believe we're looking at the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by grace. But when I say that, I want to point out to you that God uses the Old Covenant as a physical illustration of spiritual truth. If we had the time to go through the Word of God, I could prove to you that no Jew, no Jew with one exception, wanted to be led out of the land of Egypt. Only Moses. No other Jew wanted to be delivered from the world system. But God saved them by grace no Jew anticipated or expected water from the rock with the exception of Moses, possibly Aaron. And Moses was as theologically wrong as he could be when he struck the rock twice. And yet God, by grace, gave them water. This is why you don't hear any reference to going to heaven in the Old Testament, because the Old Covenant is a demonstration of spiritual truth in physical reality. Moses did not enter into the promised land. Why? Because he didn't believe God. Oh, if you don't believe God, you're not saved. do well, you ever get an idea like that? You don't believe God most of the time. You say all things work together for good. That's when you inherit the million dollars and everything works great. But when everything isn't great, you don't believe it. You don't believe God holds you in the hollow of his hand, that he works all things after the counsel of his own will, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You say you do, but many times you show you don't. Moses didn't believe God. because he didn't believe god he didn't enter into rest but there are truths in that physical reality you must understand also there are caleb's and joshua's who stand out above the body of believers but they're held back by the body of believers they didn't rush into the promised land they had to go through the wilderness also for 40 years because they're identified with the body of christ so are you that's why i'm not here to present a position if you want to criticize me or brother Stam or brother davis or anybody else here go ahead all i ask you to do is wait until christ is through with us and when he's through with us we'll be conformed to the image of his son we'll be just like christ and then you go ahead and criticize so will you i don't know where you are i don't know whether you're a full-grown fingernail or whether you're an ear or a toe but if you know jesus christ you're in the body of christ now with that little bit of definition let's look at the word baptizo nobody's ever translated now i think it's a shame to sit here and read a Greek new testament where people have skillfully and academically translated the Greek into English until we come to the word baptism. Nobody ever translated it. It's translated two or three different ways in your Bible unless you get into the Septuagint, and then we have cleanse and purify. as a couple of other translations. But when we read in the so-called Great Commissions, Go ye into all the world, and teach all nations, or man thou, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the father of the son of the holy spirit all you've done is taken a beta and make it a b and an alpha and make it an a and a pi and make it a p you haven't told me what the word means now i don't think that's fair i don't think it's right for you to say baptized means immerse three times face forward in water or pour water over your head or sprinkle or any other picture that comes to your mind i spoke in decatur alabama two summers ago and a young man came up and shook his fist in my face about two inches from my nose, and I figured his right stopped when it got another inch. He shook his fist in my face, and he said, the word baptized to me means three times face forward immersed in water and nothing else. I said, fine. If that's what the word means to you, that's what you ought to read into it. I think you're foolish, but if that's what the word means, that's what it means to you. I'm not going to tell you that it means anything else. And when I speak to you this morning, the pictures you paint in your mind are totally dependent on the meanings of the words i use now it's that way with me uh, my position in the law is different than yours i'm sure other than that we're saved by grace i read the new testament in the greek and when i come to the word baptizo i don't read three times face forward in water what does the word mean i don't know you know it'd be nice if we were laying foundations if i could tell you what the word means i don't know i have listed over 162 different meanings that i have found in the papyrus And in ancient Greek, in the use of Greek scholars, the word basically came out of the dyeing industry, D-Y-E. And if you wanted to dye a blouse or a sweater this morning, you baptized. And the dye never left the sweater. That's where the meaning immerse grew out of the word baptizo. And when you immerse something, you never take it out. And it's a thrill to realize that I'm immersed in Christ and never take out, but I'm dyed with Christ and the dye never leaves me. In this great commission in the gospels go ye now you may write a book go ye means you but it's not an imperative it's not a command it's a present participle in the greek and to say that's a great commission and build a great commission on a participle is foolish grammar christ did not say i command you to go he didn't say that it's not a command at all go ye present participle as you leave my presence teach that's the imperative and it's man on the greek And the word means to teach people in such a way that they become identified with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not with you. Now, I happen to have a group of people identified with me. Brother Stamp happens to have a group of people identified with him. Brother Davis happens to have a group of people identified with him. That isn't anything to boast about. I, in my own particular case, take that as a reflection on my teaching. God has commanded me to teach people in such a way that they follow Christ, not our property. And in so much as they follow our crawford, I have faith in my responsibility to honestly and fairly teach the Word. It isn't anything in which I boast or anything that makes me feel good when somebody says, well, I'm going to have to go and ask Art and see what he thinks of that person. That makes me feel that somehow or another I've taught those people to rely on me and not the Holy Spirit. I believe the best possible translation of the word baptizo is to come completely under the influence of something else,
1: go ye as
2: ye leave my presence. Teach all nations in such a way that they come completely under the influence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I think, with rare exception, the word baptizo is used in the Greek always in that sense. Very rare exception. Paul says in First Corinthians one, I thank God that I baptized none of you, save Crispus and Gaius, and, and there were two or three others of the household of Stephan. Let's suppose that Paul were baptizing by immersion or sprinkling or pouring. I wouldn't waste one minute with you arguing about the mode. If prepositions mean that much to you, you can argue whether act means out of or from. And you can find it translated 500 times each way. And go ahead. This won't bother me a bit. I don't build my doctrine on prepositions. And I'm not particularly interested in how the disciples did it. Somebody asked me last summer, well, should we worship Christ like the disciples did? I hope not. I like electric lights, air conditioning, glass and the wings I like those things. Public address systems, tape recorders. I see the disciples bickering and complaining among themselves. I hope we've grown out of that. I hope the dissension between us isn't quite as bad as uh, Paul and Barnabas or Mark or a few others. I trust we've gone beyond that. But it doesn't make any difference anyway. What really comes is what does the word say? And with rare exception, the word baptizo means to be under the influence of or to be identified with Christ says can you be baptized with a baptism which I am being baptized brother Stan was just remarked about the so called great commission in Mark chapter 16 he that believeth it is baptized now I'm sure we have a difference of opinion I believe that with all my heart just to tell me that you believe God doesn't talk mean you're saved you're not saved because you love Christ you're not saved because you believe God you're not saved for anything you do you're saved because Christ died and As I pointed out to many brethren, you're not saved because you love Christ. You're saved because Christ loved you. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You go along great. You break one, and then the devil will come to you. You don't love him, do you? You, well, you broke his commandment. Didn't he say if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? You didn't keep his commandment. You must not love him. Well, that's true. You agree with the devil and you agree with God. Say, yeah, devil, that's right. I don't love him, but boy, praise God, I'm saved because he loved me. Amen. I'm saved because I loved him. Boy, it's marvelous. If you don't understand that teaching of grace, you're going to be a discouraged neurotic Christian. He that believeth and is, is identified. That's right. Man, that's true. You've got to believe and be identified. But it's a passing. Anybody point out to you that Baptizo so there's a passing? It isn't something you did. It's something that was done to you. It's something that was done to you. That's what's
1: important. Now, commands,
2: uh, but you're familiar with commands the same as I am. The only time baptizo occurs in the Word of God is a command. It only occurs twice. It's an aorist passive. The aorist indicates its imperative, that you ought to do it. You know, it's important that you do it now. When you use an aorist imperative in the Greek, you're saying, do it now. Not only do it, but do it now. But when you use a passive, you you put a meaning into the word that you've got to understand. For example, I could say to you, be born. It's a command in the English language. Be born. What are you going to do? Pre it? So we suddenly find ginomite is always a passive. You can't be born by your own action. Active voice, something you do. Passive voice, something done to you. So it's always a passive. would be in English too, wouldn't it? You'd simply understand it. If I said, be born, you'd understand that I'm giving you a command. It has to be passive. It can't be active. Nothing you could do. Now I could say to you, be shy. I've suddenly given you a command. Well, now I have an active or a passive significance you could shoot yourself or you could let somebody else shoot you. Or I could use a command like be crucified. You have a problem. Pretty hard to crucify yourself. You're back in the past. Or I can give you a command that is very obviously active like eat ice cream. Now, baptizo never occurs as an imperative active. It does occur in the active voice many times in the word of God. But never is an imperative active. Always is an imperative passive. And so when God commands you to be baptized, he's simply commanding to allow something to happen. To allow something to happen. We read in the scriptures, for example, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Doesn't he?
1: Paul, we're talking of Ephesians.
2: That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that passes now. Doesn't Christ dwell in my heart? Why is Paul getting down on his knees and praying that Christ may dwell in my heart? It's It's to, to dwell there, to be at home, that Christ not only lives in me, but I allow him to live in me. Now, I'm saved because he lives in me, but oh, what a difference in my life when he's at home in my heart, when I'm really interested in the things of the Lord. Now, I'm impressed that as many of you came out as did. I, oh Barbara Wiseman, there'll be 10 years. I don't think there's 100, but I'm surprised that as many of you came. You're going to be here all day. I'm not sure why Brother Davis is here or why Brother Stamps is here. I'm not real sure why I'm here. I'm here because I love Marv and Paul and a few others of you. And those of you who I don't know, I love him too. It's the only reason I'm here. But I'm impressed that you'd come here for, what, a 12-hour day? More than that to discuss water baptism. Therefore, leaving the principles, the doctrine, the elements of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Are we here to discuss repentance from dead works? Anybody here have any problems in that area? Or of faith toward God? Have we gathered together for 12 hours to discuss faith toward God? Or the doctrine of baptism? or the laying on of hand or of resurrection from the dead or of eternal judgment What you got them all squared away but one how many of you would gather together for 12 hours to worship verse by verse, word by word in the glories of Jesus Christ I trust you but it seems to me that we're actually gathering together to discuss something we've been told to leave behind Is a mode of water baptism so important to you that you couldn't fellowship with another member of the body of Christ? Does it mean that much to you? If it does, I'm not criticizing you at all. If it does, seek a body of believers that would agree with you. But don't cause strife or heartache or anguish or divisions in the body of Christ. For when you cause such things, the scriptures say, for this reason, there must be divisions among you that they that have been put to the test and passed, not do not so, may be made manifest. That's the reason divisions the come, they make you study. They make you dig into the word of God, that they that are approved, and they may be manifest. Now you've left all the first principles that the Holy Spirit enumerates, except one. Now Hebrews 9 makes it very clear that the Old Testament covenant was full of baptism. Hebrews 9, 10, it's called divers washings, in your authorized version, but the Greek word is baptism. That one of the great activities of the law... Now, I want you to understand that the law is the physical demonstration of spiritual truth. When did the Jews get the law? Long after they were redeemed. You see, they were saved by grace and led out of the land of Egypt, and then the law was had. You were saved by grace and led out of the world system by the Spirit of God, and then responsibility was had. <coughs> but you don't live the Christian life by rules. Because the old covenant proved you can't live it by rules. It's Christ in you, the certainty of glory. And the Christian experience is Christ in you, not living by rules. Since you're risen with Christ, why submit yourselves to ordinances? Touch on taste on hanting. All of these things perish with the use of. By the grace of God, you're identified with Jesus Christ. If you're not, you're not saved. But in the old covenant, this was a physical truth. They were physically baptized with water.
1: That would sound
2: like I'm arguing for no water baptism in the New Covenant. I'm not arguing for anything. I'm just trying to look at the word as objectively as I know how to do it. For me to tell you you should not be water baptized in the New Covenant would be the same as telling you you shouldn't give money to the church. However, if I told you you not only should give money to the church, but you ought to legalistically tie 10% of your income, then I'd be hiding the scriptures. I think it's the southern Baptists, if I say it in all love, who defined the storehouse of Malachi. as the church. God never defined it as that. The reason we had the physical tithe in the Old Testament was to rejoice. You took 10% of your income spent it for whatever you wanted. Wine, strong drink, oxen, race cars. Whatever it was, you took 10% of your income and spent it for that that you might rejoice before the Lord. The Levites didn't live off the tithe. They lived off the offering. Offering Joshua 13, they subsisted off the offerings that were made because you sinned unknowingly. You didn't offer any for known sin, just unknown sin. And your tithe was that you might learn that God had blessed you and that you might rejoice. Now for me to tell you you have to do that is to put you back under law. And behold, I testify to every man that is circumcised he's a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you whoever so you are justified by the law. You're fallen from grave. But we wait for the hope of righteousness through faith you've fallen from grace. now for you to give money to the church sure I think you ought to do that God's given you a gift to give if it blesses your heart if you've received that gift of the Holy Spirit give money of course if the Holy Spirit has laid upon you a desire to portray by some physical symbol a spiritual truth in your life by all means do it if it's the coming of the Holy Spirit sprinkling it look good if it's death with Christ try mercy but by all means do it I wouldn't tell you not to do it. But for, for me to you, tell you it's commanded not scripture. Nothing. So you don't live the Christian life by rules. There's only one rule. Not one. You do it fine. You don't do it fine. Same with giving. I wouldn't put you under tithing. I wouldn't put you under offering. I wouldn't put you under baptism. But I would say I am not he to function as the Holy Spirit to you. I am not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is able to leave you, leave you. My sheep hear my voice and another, they will not follow. I have a lot of faith in the Holy Spirit, a lot more than in me or in these gentlemen or anybody else. He can guide you. I trust with all of my heart that you'll be willing to be guided. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat>
3: I would like to say at the very beginning that I'm very happy to be here, but uh, that in his opening his statement, uh, one of the disadvantages of being number three in a three-man program is that the others have the slight advantage of being able to speak prior to your speaking and can steal some of your lines. Brother Crawford stole my line right from the very beginning because he said, I don't know why I'm here. Frankly, I don't know either. I am here, I suppose. I've been asking myself, coming down from Mary this morning, why I was coming down here, and I suppose that I'm here simply to state my faith, and for no other purpose at all. I was not always a Baptist. I want to make that very clear. On October 17, 1931, I was saved solely by the grace of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from any baptism whatsoever. And I was saved in a men's meeting in the basement of Baraka Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I went into that meeting, uh, died in the wool center, and came out of it a saint of God, positionally speaking, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I praise God for the fact that there were evidences right from the very beginning, that is, external evidences, according to my understanding of the Word of God, of what God had wrought. During the first 11 years of my Christian life, I taught a daily radio program over a three-station hookup in, originating in Philadelphia, was heard in Boston and New York, And when that program was terminated, for reasons that I shall not go into right now, I felt led to go into the ministry. And uh, I found myself with an ordination from Baraka Church, which was recognized by absolutely no one, and I had become very definitely persuaded of the Baptist position. And so I took my ordination to uh, a church then pastored by Dr. Lehman Strauss, I'm sure some of you must know him, and uh, he and his board recognized this individual as a man called of God and as a man who was acceptable for ordination of the Baptist Church, and so I followed through. Now, I've come to this position in my ministry because, first of all, I believe Matthew chapter three, verses 13 to 17, to which Brother Stam has already referred, uh, prefigures our lord's death on calvary in other words i believe that our lord's baptism of john in jordan prefigures our lord's death on calvary now i believe that for several reasons i learned from matthew 16 21 that our lord obviously came to die now i'm not going to go back into a lot of old testament detail because there are a number of portions of the old testament make it very clear also that he came to die for instance, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree in Galatians, and looking back into Old Testament reference and so forth. But uh, I find in Matthew 16:21 that our Lord clearly stated that he had come to die. He'd be crucified, he'd be buried, and the third day he would rise again. Then I find in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that Paul teaches us That in the fullness of time god sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons of course by faith in jesus christ also i find in hebrews chapter 10 and verses 5 through 7 that the lord speaking out of psalm 40 and verses 6 through 8 said lo i come in the volume of the book now i don't know how my brethren feel but the book there to me is the Old Testament. In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Now I find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from and from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, I believe in Matthew chapter 20 and 22, Mark 10, 38, and Luke 12, 50, to which reference has been made briefly already this morning, I see there that the death of our Lord. He is prophesying his death using the word baptism. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 38, I find two men crucified with him, two thieves. I find one of those men dying as a believer. I find the other one dying as an unbeliever. And I find in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 that we have the identical phrase, our old man is crucified with him. Now when I come to Matthew chapter 3 and 6, and um, that's verse 6, and Mark 1, 4, and Luke 3, Luke 3, 3, I want to read this now, so I'll have it exactly. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and those who came on the basis of John's message were baptized of him, of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I want to immediately recognize and quickly recognize that, as Brother Stam has pointed out, the baptism of John in the synoptics, and I want to emphasize that, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke was exactly and precisely that. It is clearly stated, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in verse 2. And they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. This is also stated in Mark 1, 4. And Luke 3, 3, preaching the baptism of repentance for remission. But I'd like to call your attention, friends, to the fact that the Bible is a progressive revelation. Now, I don't think that I'm uh, pointing out anything new here today. I'm sure this is realized by everyone present, but I want to read it. We read at verse 4 of Ephesians 3, Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and the partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. There's progress there. And the Bible is a progressive revelation. I believe that the Brother Crawford has touched upon that. Currently in our new church in Marion, I am preaching the book of Genesis. And I'm saying essentially what Brother Crawford has said, that uh, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the great truths of the gospel as we come to find them in the New Testament. And I believe that with all of my soul. For instance, we've been seeing that the God of creation is the God of salvation for the simple reason that Jesus Christ was, is, the creator, that he is the God of renewal. He sends forth his spirit. He renews the face of the earth. He's the God of renewal in our lives. He's the God of separation. He divided the light from the darkness. We have no difficulty with any of these things, even in Genesis chapter 1. But now getting back to the thought here in uh, the synoptics, I accept the teaching of the synoptic gospels but now i also want to call your attention to john's gospel chapter one and there you'll remember that we have this man sent from god whose name was john the obvious reference to john the baptist for the sake of time i can't detail all of the verses as these gentlemen have pointed out and in verse 15 of that context i read now remember this is in conjunction with the same baptism of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in this passage I read, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, that he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we received, and grace for grace. Now I lay no claim to being a Greek scholar. I've been studying the bible for 40 years and i have managed to decipher a few words for my own spiritual benefit and i believe that in verse 16 the word for would give us the thought of continual renewal and so if you will look at verse 16 and of his fullness have we all received and grace in continuing renewal of grace at least i trust that will fast muster because i preached that to my people and they got a blessing out of it anyway <laughs> for the law was given by moses grace and truth came by jesus christ now my point here is this and simply this when we come to kingdom in john's gospel in addition to what i've been saying here i read nothing of the kingdom of heaven in the gospel of john whatsoever Nowhere. For instance, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, and verse 3 and verse 5, our Lord is teaching Nicodemus, and I'm going to take a composite of the verses, that except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's important, I believe, and I think you'll see why in just a few moments. Uh, He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then the other reference to kingdom in John's Gospel is in 1836. Our Lord said, "My kingdom is not of this world." And goes on to say, "If my kingdom were of this world, then would my disciples uh, fight?" But because of the fact that it's not of this world, they are not doing so. Now I find that in John chapter one, verses fifteen through seventeen, and the reference to grace. And if you will come on down in the passage, you will discover in the verses that uh, here we have a reference to John's baptism in verse. 25. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest them thou, if thou be not the Christ, or allow ask neither that prophet? John answered and said, Saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And he goes on to say, He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, I came baptizing with water in John chapter 1, as he did in Matthew, Mark, and Luke.